Why don't we uh, read through our passage tonight, which is Isaiah 1, verses 27 to 31. We'll uh, be finishing off the first chapter tonight. As I, uh, as I said this morning, it's taken six weeks to do chapter one, so my schedule of finishing it in three years seems a little unlikely right now, but we, we'll probably speed up a bit as we go along. It's here in these early sections that we're establishing themes that are really crucial for understanding the entire book, um, understanding the background that Isaiah is referring to so that we understand that as we progress as well. So but anyway, we'll finish off tonight. So let's read together from uh, chapter 1 and verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study tonight and as we come to this conclusion of the first chapter, that you'd help us to understand your word. We pray that your word would impact us, speak to us, that we would not harden our hearts, but we'd hear from you, Lord, and we would apply your word to our lives for our transformation and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so uh, last time we looked at the section of verses 21 through 26, and generally speaking, it was a passage of condemnation, a passage of the judgment against Israel, a faithful city that had become a whore. And it was here again that the issue has been raised of spiritual adultery, that concept of prostitution is an analogy that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament for spiritual adultery, for idolatry, for the worship of other gods. And really, we've seen already in chapter 1 multiple references to idolatry. And it's important each time that we note them, as we will again today, because it, it gives us a background as to how idolatry was spoken of and how it was addressed and the forms it took. And it enables us to really understand the key condemnation of idolatry as it comes across. These first five chapters are essentially our foundation and our background so that when the book starts properly in chapter 6, we understand all the implications of what's being said there. And so there was this condemnation of the idolatry of Israel, how its righteousness and justice had gone astray and been put aside, its impurity, how it had become impure, and how it was laden with sin. But there in the middle of that, of that uh, layered sandwich, as it were, of those verses, um, the chiastic structure, as it's called. Right there in the middle was the reference to God. Therefore the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. And it's, so it is that the resolution for their sin, for their impurity, for their rejection of righteousness and justice, the solution is God. And God is going to come 
and he's going to come in his wrath and his wrath will be appeased and he will get relief and there will be vengeance but when we come to verse 25 we saw that that wrath of God wasn't a destruction of Israel it was a purification of Israel that in the fire of his wrath that there would be the purification just like precious metal is purified in the fire and that in his wrath there was not simply destruction of Israel, quite the opposite. There was the removal of dross, the removal of sin, the removal of unrighteousness. And ultimately, verse 26, there would be restoration and the restoration of their righteousness and their status as a faithful city. And it's then in that context that we come to verse 27 and we're told that Zion, this city of God, Jerusalem, shall be redeemed by justice. So we've had the reference to justice back at the beginning of the previous section. Look at verse 21. The faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. So, so Jerusalem was a city that was renowned for its justice. And God has seen how that faithful city has become unfaithful, become an idolatrous city. And he is going to restore it and make it faithful again. And specifically with regards to that restoration to faithfulness, he says that she will be redeemed by justice. So the city that was renowned for justice is going to return to her state of faithfulness by a faithful God who will do it with justice. God isn't going to, you know, God wants Israel to be a faithful city who is, that is characterized by justice and righteousness. That can't happen by God cheating. That can't happen by God twisting the rules. God has to make her righteous by justice in a just way. And the way in which he's going to do that is redemption. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. There will be a fair way of Israel, of Jerusalem's restoration, and that will be redemption. Now, we understand, I believe, what redemption means. It's this concept, and we won't necessarily need to turn there today, but we're hopefully, I think, fairly familiar with the concept now. Originates from the book of Exodus and the, uh, and the, uh, the freedom from the slavery of the Egyptians and how there was this price that was paid. There was the slaughter of the Passover lamb that took the place of the firstborn. If the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the blood was put on the door of the house, then the angel of death passed over the house and the firstborn was preserved, was protected. There was redemption. The blood of the lamb paid the price so that the blood of the firstborn wasn't necessary. And so this concept of redemption continued through Israel's history. Exodus 13, Numbers 18, talks about the sacrifice of the firstborn, the, the redemption price. That every time uh, 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 a you know, Jewish family had a child, the firstborn child, that child, there had to be a sacrifice, a, a redemption price, where a, a lamb was slaughtered in place of that firstborn. A reminder of the, past, the first Passover. And this concept of redemption is one that we're unfamiliar with, typically in our society. 
where somebody is enslaved and a redemption price is then paid. Something is paid for the freedom of the other. And that was carried through to slavery. If a Jewish person was found, uh, put themselves into slavery, if they weren't able to pay their debts, for example, and they became a slave voluntarily because that was their welfare system, that they, would, they had nothing to offer other than themselves, then there would come this point where, if, where they could be redeemed from slavery by the payment of a price. Somebody would buy them from their master. And that concept, of course, is used ultimately in the New Testament, where redemption is ultimately found not in a lamb's blood, but in the lamb's blood. That the Messiah, Jesus, our Passover lamb, that his blood paid the price for us to be redeemed from sin. So all this talk of redemption is working towards the redemption that is accomplished through the Messiah. And Isaiah himself is not behind on this point. He is going to teach us that exact point. Here he talks about the redemption of Zion. And ultimately, as the book progresses, he's going to show us how that redemption happens through the sacrifice of Messiah. But for now, he simply notes that there will be a redemption of Zion, that it will be restored through the payment of a price, and the, re the, the, the reason that the redemption has to happen is that the restoration of Zion is by justice. God doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to let you off. Remember back a few verses earlier. I will get relief for my enemies. I will avenge myself from my foes. God's wrath must be appeased. There needs to be that propitiation, remember that word. The appeasing of God's wrath. And God will have a price paid, and thus the restoration will be a redemption. So there is definitely going to be this restoration of Zion. Jerusalem will be restored. And those in her who repent by righteousness. So, those who are part of this redemption, those who lived there at that time, those who are going to be the ones who are going to be part of this redeemed Zion, they will repent. And there will be righteousness. There will be a righteousness that is given to them. And again, the book of Isaiah is going to take us through this process by which this will happen. This will happen through Messiah, who, as people repent of their sins, will be, be declared righteous by his redemption, and thus Israel's restoration will occur. Right now, we're seeing the fruits of redemption. We're seeing the fruits of the redemption of Messiah's blood in our righteousness. But ultimately, we're told, there will be the same redemption and the same righteousness that will be given to Jerusalem. In contrast, verse 28, there will be those who are rebels and sinners, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Now, we noted this use of language with regards to eating in previous weeks, that there was going to be a consumption of of the great produce and prosperity of the land of milk and honey. All they had to do was to obey the law, to keep God's commands, and they would prosper, and there would be prosperity to their mouths. They would enjoy the fruit of the land. But if they weren't going to obey, 
then it wouldn't be them who would be consuming, but them who would be consumed. And the message of Isaiah 1 is very much one, as we said last time, of consume or be consumed. Obey and enjoy prosperity, or disobey and receive judgment. And so there will ultimately be this choice where Israel will be redeemed. Those who repent will be part of that redemption. They will be righteous. But in contrast, those who don't repent, the sinners and the rebels will be broken. They will be crushed and they shall be consumed. Notice the distinction here. That the city will be redeemed. That God's wrath will be poured out. Not to destroy Israel but to purify it. But the purification happens through the making righteous of the remnant and the destruction of the wicked. There is a pruning, if you like. The wicked are destroyed, but there are those who are not destroyed and who are purified that allow for the redemption of the city and of the nation as a whole. Central themes here for Isaiah that we will be repeated again and again and again. So verses 27 and verse 28 really follow on quite nicely from last week. There will be this restoration of Jerusalem. Israel will be redeemed. God will do it justly. They will become righteous. And those who reject this opportunity for righteousness will be crushed broken, destroyed, and consumed. Four, here is the reason for their destruction. This is talking now about those who are the ones who will be destroyed. Verse 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. There's, there's, a, there's a strange shift here in person. It says, it's talking in verse 28 about these rebels in the third person. Notice verse 28. Rebels and sinners shall be broken. Literally in the Hebrew, rebels and sinners, they shall be broken. Okay? Third person. So when we shift in verse 29, they is the rebels and the sinners. They shall be ashamed of the oaks. But now, as he comes into verse 29 and following, he starts to address them directly. And so he shifts very awkwardly to the second person. In fact, it's so awkward that some um, old Hebrew manuscripts changed the they to you early on in this verse. But you can see what the author, what Isaiah is doing here. He's talking in general terms about the restoration of Israel. In that final day, there'll be those who repent and are made righteous, and there'll be those who don't repent and who are consumed. And then he shifts and he says, and you are like those rebels. You are the ones who will be consumed. You, like them, are idolaters. You are the ones that I am speaking to. So there's this very deliberate and awkward, it, 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 it's clangy to our ears. They, and then suddenly you, referring to the same people. He's taking the concept, rebels and sinners, and he's pointing to his current audience and saying, you are like them. That's why we have the shift here. So he says, well, um, they shall be ashamed of the oaks. So the rebels and sinners will ultimately be consumed and they will be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. So the shift comes with those rebels and sinners on the last day, those who reject the redemption of Jerusalem, 
They will ultimately be ashamed of their oaks. We'll explain what that means in a moment. Okay? Some of you look confused. Why would they be ashamed of oaks? Um, we'll tell you in a minute. But you, you now, Israel, not Israel in the future, not Israel on the day of redemption, not Israel at end times, Israel now, you desire those same oaks that they desire. Yeah, why, why are people desiring oaks? What's this all about oaks? Well, for us to understand that, I think we're going to need to go on a little journey. And we'll do this very briefly, but we'll flick through our Bibles bit by bit so we do it. Why don't we start off in Deuteronomy, get a little hint from the law. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 16. We're not going to spend a long time in any of these verses. We're going to quickly jump through about seven, eight, nine of them quite quickly. The background to all of this is that we've already seen in Isaiah the call upon heaven and earth that was so crucial at the beginning. Heaven and earth are the witnesses. And we saw the reason for that back in Deuteronomy. That heaven and earth, there was this danger that the God who created heaven and earth, that when his people entered into the land, that they would pick up the habits of the people of the land, and that rather than worshipping the God who created heaven and earth, that they would start worshipping heaven and earth. That they would be idolaters. And so he calls on heaven and on earth, the heavens above and the earth below, he calls upon them to be witnesses should the people end up worshipping. Hey, it's like you say, hey, heavens, stars, moon, sun, air, the sky. If people start worshipping you, 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 you'll be a witness to that, won't you? Hey, hey, you things on the earth, animals, trees, if, if you, they start worshipping you, you'll be a witness, won't you? And so they stood as witnesses to the idolatry of Israel. Israel went into the land, they did end up worshipping the foreigners' gods, and now Isaiah is condemning them for that. That's why the call for heaven and earth. And what is interesting is that one of the ways in which they worshipped the earth was that they would worship trees. Not just it, well, in two ways. They would make their idols, the images, by carving them from trees. So in creating images to worship, they would create images from carving into trees. So trees became integral to idolatry. But more than that, they, they de developed to the point where ancient trees, specific trees, older trees, were revered. And they were even believed to possess divine spirits. That these gods would dwell within trees. And you even see that in some pagan religions today. People believe that there, is, that there can be a demonic presence within trees or a spirit's presence within trees. And sometimes even in carvings and objects made from trees. And sometimes, very, very sadly, certain Christians even embrace that understanding. Have you ever heard of Christians who go to somebody's house and someone in that house has a, a carving that they picked up from somewhere in Africa or somewhere and it's some sort of carving and they're like, oh, you've got demons in your house. No, that's a pagan belief. No demons in that bit of wood. Sad, but it's true. We kind of embrace some of that mentality. God is the God above all gods. Anyway, with that as our background, let's start our journey in Deuteronomy 16. Verse 21. 
forbidden forms of worship. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of Yahweh your God that you shall make. You shall not set up a pillar which Yahweh your God hates. So you're going to notice here immediately this. The issue is not them getting rid of the worship of Yahweh. They're not saying, oh, we're done with you, God. We don't want to worship you. We're going to worship other gods. That's never the issue. The issue with idolatry is they keep Yahweh, but they worship someone alongside. And the issue here is that as well as the altar to worship God, that they plant a tree as an Asherah, that's a, a place of worship. And they set up a pillar, pole of wood, as part of a worship system of false gods. You won't do that. There isn't anyone who's going to be worshipped alongside God. The worship of Yahweh is a solitary pursuit. It's a worship of Him and Him alone. He is a jealous God. And so we have that warning there in Deuteronomy 16. If you flick ahead a bit and you go through through Joshua and Judges, and once you're into your, your double books, as I call them, you have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. In the middle there, 1 Kings, 1 Kings. If you go through 1 Kings to chapter 16, in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 33, well, let's read back from verse 29. This is Ahab. We know him. He's one of the kings of this time, and he's a bad king. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's not a good testimony, is it? Worse than all the bad kings before him. A new low. And this, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidians, and he went and, and served Baal and worshipped him. So he married a woman from, uh, from the surrounding nations and started worshipping Baal as she and her people did. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. He even built a house for Baal that he might be worshipped there. This is a wicked king. And Ahab made an Asherah. So he took, again, we saw that word Asherah in Deuteronomy 16. It's the taking of that wood to make an object of worship, and in this case, a worship to Baal. And look at what it says after. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings that were before him. The very thing God said in Deuteronomy 16 not to do, he did. He went and alongside the temple of Israel, he built a house for Baal, put up an Asherah to worship him, and therefore trees are being used in worship. Second Kings, let's move to the next, sec next book. Second Kings again, chapter 16. Second Kings, chapter 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his own son as an offering. 
Should we just pause at that moment? <sighs> According to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Notice again there, the trees being associated with the places of idolatry and false worship. And by the way, some of these kings' names you're going to be familiar with because we dealt with them in the introduction. This is the idolatry that Isaiah is responding to. We're reading contemporary accounts. God sees Ahab and says, you, know, you are the worst king ever, more than any before you. And then we, a book later, we have another king offering his own son as a sacrifice. And in both cases, there is the use of trees to show that they are worshipping other gods. And it's their worship of other gods that is provoking Yahweh and bringing about evil and wickedness into the nation of Israel. In each of these cases, I'm showing you the connection with trees in all of these cases. Now, if we go back to Isaiah and we shift ahead of where we are, and we look at chapter 57 of Isaiah. I'm jumping ahead in the book a little bit here. Isaiah 57. In Isaiah 57, I'm reading from halfway through verse 4. He says, Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? Look at this. Verse 5. You who burn with lust among the oaks. There's our word from chapter 1, oaks. Specific trees, ancient trees, old trees that were associated specifically with idolatrous worship. Under every green tree same repetition of green tree that we saw in 2 Kings. And notice here that we have repetition of other things from Isaiah 1. The repetition of the word burning, which is a play on words, because burning is what God does in judgment, and the judgment's going to come because they're burning with lust, just like he plays on the concept of eating, consuming. There is them, this plays now with burning. There is them burning with lust, which will result in them being burned in judgment. With fire. And again, notice the association of here. Uh, the association here with lust. Notice a few verses earlier. Offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. There is the use of sexual immorality as imagery of the spiritual adultery of Israel. And again, it's associated with oaks and green trees. Jump ahead a little bit to the next book, Jeremiah, and chapter 2. Jeremiah 2, and as you get there, we're looking at verse 20. Jeremiah 2, verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. That's the reference to their yoke of slavery, them being freed at the Passover from the slavery of Israel. Long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. Gosh, isn't this familiar with our study in Hebrews? How they came out 
from slavery and God did so much for them and yet they didn't trust him. I will not serve. Yes, he says, on every high hill and under every green tree, there's that idolatry again, you bow down like a whore. There's that word from chapter 1 of Isaiah again. That spiritual idolatry is associated with adultery. Spiritual adultery. Idolatry is unfaithfulness to God. Go ahead one chapter to chapter 3 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3 and verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? Again, we're talking about adultery, idolatry, how she went up on every high hill and every green tree and there played the whore. You're seeing the repetition of all of these terms and all of these concepts. Chapter 17 of Jeremiah. Just whizzing through them quickly. Jeremiah 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their Rim, there we are again, beside every green tree and on the high hills and on the mountains in the open country. Now, the one other thing that we're seeing here repetitively is that these green trees, these oaks, these asherim are associated with high hills. That's being repeated and we may refer back to that next time. But again, notice again the repetition of these concepts being associated together. And finally, let's do one more. Next book, Ezekiel. So after Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel. Oh, we have Lamentations briefly. Then we have Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel chapter 6. Let's read Ezekiel 6 and verse 11. Thus says uh, the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your feet and say, Woe, because all of the evil abominations of the house of Israel, they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine, and I will spend my fury on them. Again, just like we're seeing in Isaiah 1, the wrath of God against Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh when their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountain tops, on every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I'll stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste. Notice again, they go and have these high places on mountain tops. Places that are associated with worship. We'll, we'll probably come back to the next time, as I say. But there's these, this association with oaks, green trees, um, idol worship, Asherah. All of these things are associated together. And they're constantly associated with I- terms of um, spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness. That is what idolatry is. The worship of other gods alongside Yahweh. And so with all of that, let's go back to Isaiah 1. So now we have a little bit of understanding. To, to talk about oaks is not unusual. 
It's one of those trees that's, you know, I, I don't know if you know much about oak trees. Where, where we lived in England, we had a big oak tree on our land. And oak trees are just astonishing things. I mean, hundreds of years old. Just amazing quality. You can't just cut them down and regrow them. They don't regrow quickly. You know, it's not like any other little tree. You know, you plant a tree in your garden and you might have fruit in a few years. But oak trees take a long, long time. They're old, established trees. And it was that age that gave them the sense. And so that they would use all sorts of green trees to worship. And, you know, notice, by the way, the repetition of green. These trees would be prosperous trees. They'd be trees with leaves. They'd be trees that have health and vitality to them. And, and so there would be evidence in the vitality of the trees of the, of the uh, power and the life of the spirits who inhabited them. And those most ancient of trees were revered the most. And so oaks here are referenced here in Isaiah. And by the way, Isaiah uses three different words for oaks. I'm not quite sure the difference between them. I'm probably going to make it one of my missions to try and find out the exact differences. But for now, I don't really know. But what I do know is this, that the verse 29, the word oaks, is different from oaks in verse 30. And I'll mention that a little bit when we get to verse 30. But what is going to happen is that these people in the future, the rebels and sinners who are going to be consumed, who won't be part of the redemption, who will be burnt up in the purifying of Israel, that in their death they will become ashamed of the idols they worshipped. That's what it means when it says they'll be ashamed of their oaks. And then, as I said, he does this shift, third person to second person. And you are like them. Because you desire the same oaks. You desire the same gods. Your heart is set after other gods. You are idolatrous. You worship other gods. That's what he's saying. It's one of those crucial things, isn't it? You know, you read the Bible and you're like, what's he talking about oaks? You have to understand the background to know what's going on. That's why I took you through those verses. This is a picture of idolatry. And then he says, and you shall blush. So in the same way that they're ashamed, you're going to be ashamed too. They're ashamed and you blush. You, you're ashamed as well. And you'll be ashamed of what? Your gardens. Now, I don't like the word gardens here. In one sense, it's really good because what, what, what was there in Eden? Eden had a garden, Garden of Eden. So in that sense, the word garden here is good because it creates the association with Eden, which we should have because it's deliberate. You're supposed to be connecting this with the Garden of Eden. But the bad thing about this translation is when we think of gardens, you today are thinking about your garden and the rose beds and the pretty flowers. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll have the odd fruit tree. But mostly there'll be nice flowers that you'll have that will make your garden look pretty. Most gardens that I see in Burbank, anyway, are mostly lawns. Just lots of grass growing and, and astonishing amounts of water being used in, in ridiculous heat to keep this grass artificially green. That's not what we're looking at here. We're, at, we're more accurately talking about orchards. The Garden of Eden was an orchard. It was a garden of trees, which is what we mean by the word orchard. The, the Garden of Eden was a place where there was fruit tree after fruit tree after fruit tree after fruit tree. Trees were good things. Trees were things that God had given to man to provide sustenance and food. You see, we're back to that connection again. 
Notice Isaiah is doing it again. He's making that link. Eat or be eaten. Consume or be consumed. And he's saying, look, he's making us think of Eden. In Eden, God gave these trees a whole collection of trees, a whole orchard of trees that was food for people. And he says, now you have your own garden. Not the garden of God, not the orchard of God, not the orchard of Eden, but your orchard of trees that you have taken this concept of trees that were supposed to feed you, trees that you were supposed to consume from, that are now trees that are used for idolatry that will result in your consumption, your destruction, your judgment. You see, it's not just that they're rebelling against God. They're taking the very things that God made for good and using them for evil. See, that's the tragedy of rebellion. That's the tragedy of idolatry. That's the tragedy of sin. That we use the gifts and the blessings of God against God. The very things that God gave us, our hands, our eyes, our intellect, our ability to reason, that all of these things are used against God, against the purpose of God, rather than for God. Rather than being used for the worship of God, it's used for the worship of false gods. There is this taking of what is good and using it for evil that will become such a theme for Isaiah. So they will be ashamed as well. They are blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Notice the parallel here. They desire the oaks. They've chosen the gardens. This is what you wanted. You wanted other gods. You weren't satisfied with Yahweh. You didn't trust Yahweh. You didn't think if you had a harvest one year that was bad, you didn't cry out to Yahweh for a good harvest. You went to Baal and asked him to give you a harvest next year. You weren't satisfied with worshipping your God. You wanted to pacify your pagan wife. And so you allowed her to worship her God. And then in the name of harmony, that you both worship both gods. You chose this, Israel. You chose this garden. You chose this idolatry. And then he says this, and this is, this is where it becomes really crucial that we understand this. Verse 30 is very, very important because it's going to become one of the key themes of Isaiah. It's going to become a key theme of the Bible. It's going to become one of the central points of this absolutely crucial chapter that we're building up to, which is chapter 6. Okay? So we need to understand this. He says, you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden, again, orchard, without water. So, he's taking the examples again, oaks for worship and and an orchard, a whole group of green trees. And notice, we've noted already, as we've been through these other passages, that these trees are green trees. They're trees that have prospered. And this is the whole idea. Why worship Baal? Because Baal's going to give you something. Baal's going to bless you. You're trusting in Baal for something. That's just crazy. No, it's not crazy. You do it every day and I do it every day. We, We trust in things other than God. We cry out to God, oh God, help us. But at the same time, we kind of put our hope in other things. 
We are closer to idolatry than we realize. But what he says here is really profound. Firstly, notice this. The oak in whom they seek prosperity, its leaves, leaves wither. The gardens become like water. In other words, you place your trust in something that seems to be prosperous now, but ultimately it'll wither. It'll burn up, it'll destroy, there'll be nothing that comes from it. You're putting your trust in something because of how it looks now. That's the stupidity of man. We, we are so limited in our scope. We look at a situation now, it's like Israel being surrounded by these armies. And Israel says, oh my goodness, you know, we'll see this in Isaiah 8, we're coming up to this. The, the Assyrians are surrounding us, what are we going to do? And they're focused on that now. Why? Because now the Assyrians are strong. Well, who's God? Who's going to ultimately be strong? Who's going to ultimately conquer? Who do we place our trust in? And he's saying you're placing your trust in these oaks because they look prosperous. You, know, you, you place your trust in Baal because those Baal worshippers got a good harvest last year. But what do you think is going to happen in the end? Who's sovereign? Who's in control? Who are you going to place your trust in? And so the judgment is a withering oak and a garden without water. In other words, their worship will prove ultimately to be empty and vain because they will accomplish nothing because everything that they worship will be destroyed. But here is the crucial point. You shall be like... Now this is a principle. This is a principle that we see in Isaiah and elsewhere. And we're going to look at it from a couple of passages now in the book of Psalms. So go back a little bit from Isaiah. You go back from Isaiah through Song of Songs, Proverbs, and you hit Psalms. And let's go to Psalm 115. <clears throat> now I will confess to you my failings. One thing I'm really struggling to, to get a definitive answer on is the chronology of Psalms and Isaiah. And a lot of it is because I'm reading a multitude of commentaries and a lot of these guys have different perspectives on scripture. And so some of them say Psalms came first, some say Isaiah came first, some say, well, some Psalms came first and some Psalms came after, and a lot of them just say, hey, I don't know. So I'm going to try and get a clearer answer for myself. So, but I think tentatively that these Psalms came before Isaiah tentatively okay but let's look at what this psalm says psalm 115 okay not to us O yahweh not to us but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness so it basically starts off with a de declaration for god to receive glory because of his faithful covenant keeping love why should the nation say where is their god our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So the other nation, nations are saying, well, you're worshipping Yahweh. What's the deal with that? What's accomplishing that? And they're like, well, God does all he pleases. He's sovereign. And in contrast, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. Right, hold it there, verse 7. Okay. 
So here you are, you have your wood, you have your oak, and you carve it into the form of an idol, right? And your idol may have eyes. What do those eyes see? Nothing. That idol may have ears. What are those ears here? Nothing. You see, God made us. And he gave us eyes to see and he gave us ears to hear. But when we make, we can't make eyes that see and ears that hear. Our idols are useless. They can't see and they can't hear. They have hands, they don't feel, and noses but don't smell. Now look at verse 8. This is the point. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. Hear this, guys. You worship idols. Who are the idols that you... Let's, let's, let's look at the idols that you worship. Your idol has eyes. Can it see? No. What happens to you if you worship that idol? You become blind. Your idol has ears. Can it hear? No. What happens to you if you worship that idol? You can't hear. You become what you worship. That's your principle right there. You become what you worship. Let's turn to Psalm 135. 20 Psalms ahead quickly. Not too many pages. Lots of them are short. Psalm 135. Psalm 135, we'll, we'll just skim, but it's about praising God. God who's chosen Israel, verse 4. God who creates the heavens and the earth, verses 6 and 7. God who redeemed them from Egypt, verses 8 and following. And he says, your name, Yahweh, endures, verse 13. You're renowned through all ages. You vindicate your people. Verse 15, now we're on to idols. In contrast to this great Yahweh, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? They have mouths, they don't speak. They have eyes, they don't see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Here we go. Those who, become, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Repetition, word for word, of Psalm 115. Your idol doesn't hear, doesn't see, doesn't speak, and you will become like it. Back to the book of Isaiah. Now this is crucial that we understand this. Isaiah is painting this picture of the idolatrous nation. He is showing us that this nation, in its idolatry, is ultimately going to be judged, and the judgment will be that they will become what they worship. That's what they're going to become. Now, I'm going to teach this ever so thoroughly when we get to chapter 6, but on my current schedule, that might be a while. So I think that it allows for us to jump ahead to chapter 6 to have a look. So let's jump ahead to chapter 6 just to see where he's going with this. When we have this initial foundation, the first five chapters, the initial setup, the initial lie of the land, then we have, boom, the beginning of the book proper. I think of chapters 1 through 5 as a prologue, as a setup. As a, as a preparation for the book. Then chapter 6, we have the calling of Isaiah. And Isaiah, we have the vision. We've looked at that in previous sermons. We have this vision. 
And following the vision, we have the commission of Isaiah, verse um, 8. He hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah gets sent and he says, Go and say this to the people. This is what Isaiah's message is. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. He says, how long, Lord? He said, until cities lie waste, without inhabitants, without houses and people, the land is a desolate waste, and Yahweh removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then he says, the tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth. That word terebinth is the same word as the word oak in verse 30 of chapter 1. They're the only two times that that word is used in the Bible. Terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is its stump. Now we'll explain verse 13, which is complex, but you see some of the, the similarities. We have the oak, two words for oak, we have the burning, and here we have the people being judged. Now, if like me, you've read Isaiah 6 and you've thought, this is a bum deal right, right now. Isaiah, hey, I need someone who's going to go and speak on my behalf. I need a prophet. I need a preacher. Isaiah says, hey, me, I'll go. I'll go speak for you, God. What do you want me to say? And God says, well, here's your message. You're going to be blind and not see. You're going to be deaf and not going to hear. And I want it to stay that way because if you did see and you did hear, you might turn, repent, and be saved. And we don't want that. Isaiah says, well, that's not really what I anticipated here. Now, you struggle with that. I struggle with that. That's a difficult message. That God is specifically giving Isaiah a ministry that would present to them their sin, but that they wouldn't see it they wouldn't hear it, and thus they would be condemned, all the more because of his message. He said, that's not fair. No, that is fair. What's happened is, and this is why we have the foundation in Isaiah 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. We have this foundation so we understand chapter 6. And the foundation is this. You're going to become like the oaks that you worshipped. You won't see, you won't hear. So when the message is presented to you, you don't even know. You have no idea. It makes no sense to you. Why? Because you have become like the idols that you worshipped. In other words, Isaiah's ministry is not to save them from idolatry. It is to explain to all of us for all time why God is going to judge them. Because they are an idolatrous nation. It should be a warning to us of how seriously God takes the worship of other gods. And by the way, I know that tomorrow you're not going to go to a uh, mosque and start worshipping Allah. I'd be very surprised if you did. So uh, we need to get that concept out of our head. When we talk about worshipping other gods, I think, and idolatry, I think there's two problems in Christianity. Problem number one is that idolatry is only worship of Allah, worship of Hindu gods, you know, worship of other gods in that sense. And in that sense, we make idolatry too narrow. 
The other mistake we make in Christian circles is if somebody has a hobby or something that they do, that they enjoy, oh, you're spending lots of time, you know, doing bird watching. That's idolatry, you know, and we make idolatry too broad. Here's the issue. Who do you trust? Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in other things? That's the heart of idolatry. They didn't trust in God to save them from the enemy at the gate. They didn't trust in God to provide for them the harvest for the next year. So they placed their trust in other gods. That was their idolatry. If we have a view of idolatry that's too narrow, we, we ignore our sin. If we have an, a view of idolatry that's too broad, we belittle our sin and we miss the point. The issue is, in whom do we trust? Who do we trust for our salvation in difficult times? Who do we cry out to when we are struggling? Who do we look to to resolve our circumstances? Who do we trust when everything comes apart? Do we, at the moment of crisis, look for solutions outside of God? Or do we fall prostrate before God? Guys, that's what it means to be a Christian. Anybody can come to church. Anybody can be raised in a Christian home and pick up a Bible here and there. But when the rubber hits the road, when hard times come, where do you turn? In the furnace, what are you found to be? A worshipper of Yahweh alone? One who trusts in Him, who turns to Him, or one who trusts in oneself? One who turns to other solutions, other ideas, other forms of redemption? In whom do we trust? This is the issue for us. And so in chapter 6, the judgment of Israel, the mission of Isaiah, is not so unfair as we might initially think. It's what they were warned about. It's what Psalm 115 said. It's what Psalm 135 said. And it's clearly in chapter 1 what they're being judged for. You shall be like, verse 30, an oak, literally terabith. This is the other word for oak that is used only here in chapter 6, verse 13. And both in context of burning. Look at verse 31. The strong shall become tinder, his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. You've got this mighty oak, hundreds of years old, green leaves, prospering. Surely it's of value. Surely there's something to revere within it, to worship within it. But it's going to wither, and what looks strong now, once it's withered, will become tinder. Without water, it will die and it will burn. And the strong here refers to two things. It refers to the things that are being worshipped, the oaks, the terabith, and it's referring to the ones who worship. Right now, you think you're doing well because you're trusting in these strong trees and these other gods, you're going to all be burnt up. Both of them shall burn together and there'll be no one to quench them. So just to recap, as we end there, Jerusalem will be redeemed and it will happen in two ways. By justice 
and redemption, Jerusalem will be restored, the wrath of God will be poured out, and in the pouring out of that wrath, many of Israel will be destroyed. Those who are idolaters, those who worship other gods, will be destroyed and they will be consumed rather than consuming the blessings of God. But those who repent and who turn will be part of the restored Zion. And that restored Zion, which is where we started before we got into our lengthy discussion of those who will be burned and consumed, that restored Zion is where we pick up in chapter 2. And in the midst of all of this judgment and condemnation and idolatry and wrath of God, we now start to get a very clear picture of God's merciful, redeeming work and we move on to seeing the restoration of Zion. And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 2 next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your, for your word. And Lord, you, you bring about holiness and righteousness and justice by burning up the rebels, burning up the idolaters. And yet many of us, God, you make righteous. Father, why? Why would you choose us to be made righteous rather than to burn? Why would you choose us for redemption rather than damnation? We would never have chosen it ourselves. And so we bow in gratitude at your mercy for our souls. And Lord, we rejoice that though you will burn Jerusalem again, that you will judge Israel again, that you are a covenant-keeping God who is faithful and you will keep her prom your promises to her and you will keep your promises to us and you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. And those you have justified, you will glorify for all eternity. Thank you, Father. Amen.